the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. I am Seth Liebson. As we head into Hour 2, it is a delight to bring back to our airwaves Professor Wilfred Riley. He is a professor of political science at Kentucky State University, author of several books, including Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, and Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. I wanted uh, Professor Riley on for two reasons today. One is he's a beautiful teacher, um, and I always, as you always, learn something from him, at least one thing from him when we have him on, often much more than that. Second, he has a piece out over at Real Clear Politics that I want as many people to obtain and read and use as possibly can. It's a question he's asking. The question is, is America good? And he writes, The Moral Case for American Goodness Endures. Professor Riley, welcome back, and thank you for joining us. Of course. Glad to be back on the show. You betcha. I, I'm actually curious in the first instance, uh, odd question. I'm a little curious how this came about. This is an amazingly well-done piece. It's obviously hugely researched, well-written. But how did it come to you, uh, The Moral Case for American Goodness Endures? For, did, uh, did Real Clear Politics come and ask you to debate, is America good? It's, it's an interesting question. Better days we wouldn't have had to debate it. But I'm just curious uh, the mechanics of how this happened. Uh, yeah, they did. As I recall, uh, it took a while for some of the left-wing submitters to get the articles in, but this was intended for the 4th of July. <laughs> so the, uh, we're in, the we're wheels of democracy August. move slowly, huh? Okay. <laughs> yeah, you only have to get everyone's samples clear. I mean, like, yeah, so everyone had to get their article edited, and I mean, I assume some people used images from other pieces and so on, but I mean... The, essentially, the article was that during that sort of summer season when you have the patriotic festivals, even if we didn't make the fourth, could you could someone defend the goodness uh, morally, if you will, of the USA? Yeah. And could someone else, I think it was Adam Seagrave and Javier Bonilla, yeah. uh, try to take down some aspects of that? So it was it was actually quite a debate. If you go over to the RCP website, oh, yeah. I mean, there are oh, yeah. four or five essays, including mine. Yep. But uh, that, that was the idea. Yeah, they did outreach to a number of academics and uh, asked this question, asked if we'd be willing to uh, to discuss this. Well, I want the audience to know that they, if they ever have to answer that question themselves, this is this is where to go to, 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 to get the answer. Is America good is the question they asked Professor Riley, and he wrote the moral case for American goodness endures. Uh, let's let's pick it up here at this point, if I can, with you, Professor. Um you asked the question that, you know, I often ask, and maybe I was tipping my hat when I said maybe in a better day this wouldn't have happened, but why is American greatness even debatable? And you say the answer is that critics, raising, ranging from well-intentioned idealists to angry radicals, have a two-part critique of the United States. You want to run us through that two-part critique? Uh, first one having to do with the United States having a poisoned founding, and the second one uh, being that, uh, to the critics, we've never overcome it, right? Yeah, roughly. I, now, I think the reason that this has become prominent, because, of course, I mean, my own ancestors uh, 
Bantu, black African warriors, Celtic Irishmen, so on, have at least as bloody a history as the United States, and both groups are rather proud of this. Oh, interesting. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, and it, that would be true of Englishmen, Germans, people of Chinese extraction, anyone in the world, Nigeria, any of our I, rivals. I'm guessing we Lithuanians were pretty tough once upon a time. Oh, Lithuanians were uh, <laughs> legendary warriors, some of the best cavalrymen in history there with you uh, go. angel wings on yeah. their backs. So they could you go, go immediately to heaven when they died and so on. But, <laughs> but another way to put this might be that all of our ancestors, no offense to the Zulus or the Lithuanians, were mm-hmm. savages in today's terms. We were all, as a man, you were expected to be a farmer or a warrior. Yep. Uh, unless you were smart enough to be a priest, and you didn't need that many priests. Right. So, but at any rate, the reason we have this unique guilt in modern America and Canada, I think is a product of the post-1960s movement of our radical class into the school system, which is actually a real threat to the country. I don't think that's an exaggeration. But the argument they make isn't, well, we're commies and we don't like the USA. It's something more specific, which is our founding is tainted, At the time of our founding, we had slaves. We beat the great Indian nations to get where we are today. And we've never really repented from that, look at George Floyd. That's that's sort of the argument. Yep. Yep. And I essentially, in the piece, take this down. I note that slavery was ubiquitous globally when the USA had slaves. This is true for our native opponents. The systemic racism critique today is not particularly valid. I mean, we've had pro-minority affirmative action in place since 1967, for example. So I try to do what's what's rarely done and offer kind of an empirical response to this, as opposed to a, if you don't like it, leave. Right. No, you have a lot of numbers. This is deeply researched. Yeah. 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 And I think the point is just, if you're going to criticize America, you you have to have an objective standard. You have to combat when we're talking about our ancestors, for example, South Africa and Lithuania are real countries that are still powerful today. You have to compare America to South Africa or to Lithuania. You can't compare us to heaven right. or to Utopia, whose right. very name means no place. So right. I, I, in the essay, look at what's the level of women's rights in the USA? What's the level of income? What's the level of average happiness? What's the level of minority rights? So on down the line. And how do those historically and today compare with those at play in other actual countries in the world? And the reality is that we do extraordinarily well. Whether you're talking about whites or African-Americans, blacks, we're some of the least racist people in the world. We're some of the wealthiest people in the world, some of the higher IQ people in the world. So it's odd that we in the world's leading nation often seem so obsessed with disliking ourselves. The Chinese, for example, do not have this vice. Right. Right. They don't they don't go around pondering whether China is a good country or not. They don't do that. You you mentioned the United States and Canada are almost unique. If I can make two countries unique, they're almost unique in the self-flagellation that they engage in. And and in part, Professor Riley, it's based on a series of myths that seem almost um, at, at once unquestionable and and I guess also undebatable. For example, you talk about the argument that slavery made America rich. No one seems to debate this. No one wants to examine it, but it trips off the tongue of our modern modern academics and racialists, right? Yeah, and if, if I can just jump kind of uh, on that segue there, yeah. the problem with that is that it's not true. Right. So again, one of the things that we've seen very, very rapidly. I mean, the young scholar Zach Goldberg calls this the Great Awakening. Mm-hmm. 
And he traces it to the second Obama campaign in 2012. When Barack Obama sort of abandoned his one-country rhetoric, which could sometimes be genuinely moving, yep. and we saw a sharp polarization of the Dems against the Republicans. This went on through Trump, blah, blah, blah. But at about this time, the major periodicals in the country um, upped the rate at which they started using terms like systemic racism by something close to a thousand percent. And what had become, what had previously been fairly fringe academic theories that already been, that already been very prevalent on the campus, started being discussed in mainstream society. So I don't think this is always the case. But yeah, over the past decade, I think we've seen the normalization of fringe left claims, like the thing that made America wealthy was slavery. The problem with that in one sentence is that slavery was concentrated in the poorest region of the country, which had actually helped impoverish, only until the year 1865. And we had to spend what would be trillions in today's dollars to defeat the powerful Confederacy to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So if you actually just take those numbers and run any kind of standard regression equation, for example, it's really, really hard to say that slavery contributed more than maybe 3 or 5% to overall American wealth. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, just in, in the most practical terms, and, you know, honor to the people that were, you know, captured as warriors, forced to work here, kept their families together at a higher rate than any group does now, so on down the line, take, take nothing from them. But the idea that these, these captured feudal peasants, essentially, that was the system that was used on plantations, are responsible for today's tech boom just isn't real. I mean, the GDP increase since 1865 has been something on the order of 176,000%. Yeah. So I, I just openly say that. And yep. I, I think because this has been so rapid and because it's so politically incorrect to oppose, yep. you rarely hear those facts, that 3%, that 5%. Well, you, I, I love what you did there, and I love, first of all, it doesn't pass a common sense test the way you look at it from 50,000 feet, but then you drill down into the numbers and you do a wonderful thing. I have to hit a quick break. Can I keep you one more segment, or do you got to run? Yeah, no, this is just so important of an essay. Again, as I go to break, Professor uh, Riley, let me tell the audience over at realclearpolitics.com, folks, you want to read this. You want to print it. You may want to carry it with you or keep it in your car. The disputed question, is America good? And Wilford Riley's response to that, the moral case for American goodness endures. Then they have a couple lefties respond to him, and then he gets the final word. You want this piece. Wilford Riley, Is America Good? I'm Seth Leibson. He's Professor Riley, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Professor Wilford Riley from Kentucky State University is our guest. His books include Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, and Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a... Fake Race War, his essay uh, published today at RealClearPolitics.com, Disputed Question, Is America Good? He takes the moral case for American goodness and answers it not only with narrative, not only with fact, but with data. Uh, Professor Riley, if I might stay with the slavery thing for a moment, um, the slavery issue for a moment. Um, We are in our multicultural society, which I started first waking up to in the early 80s, uh, supposed to excuse the ill behavior of other cultures, civilizations and societies. We're supposed to be critical of ourselves. But when it comes to the slave question, that's an impossible thing to do. 
because other civilizations and societies you walk us through had it and had it in, I don't know if you want to say much worse, but had it pretty extensively, right? I mean, this is, it's easy enough to say it's not unique, but I mean, this thing, this thing, slavery, it swept through Europe, it swept through Africa, it swept through, swept through black cultures, it swept through white cultures, it swept through Asian cultures. It was a big damn deal everywhere, wasn't it? Uh, Tom Sowell, who in my opinion is the greatest American social scientist, once said that when it comes to a lot of questions, like asking, why are some societies poor, we're looking in the wrong direction, because the reality is that historically, almost all societies have been poor. Right. The real question is, how did some societies overcome corruption, grifting, tribalism, etc., to get rich? And the same thing is true when you look at the words warlike or racist. Um, The question isn't why do we have this problem, it's why do humans have this problem with us outperforming 95% of people. So the slave question, yeah, I mean, what you often hear is this sort of silly wordplay, like in America we had chattel slavery, meaning that slaves were kept generationally and sold as property. Right. First of all, that's not unique. So did the Arabs with blacks, so did the Romans with white, so on. But I would further contend that that's not the worst kind of slavery. What makes a slave a slave and what makes slavery bad is the ownership of other people. So I don't want to go into Kennedy's, but the Aztecs had sacrificial slavery where they would capture you in battle. And instead of making you then work for a period of years or even your whole life, they would kill you and eat you. Um, I I don't think that's a better thing. Right. Um, The Moors, as distinct from the Arabs, used to make eunuchs, as they were called, where when they'd capture you, I don't know a nice way to say this, they would cut off your penis, and if you survived, they would make you work in a capacity like harem guard, for example. Right. So that's sometimes called modification slavery. It's a very polite term, I I think. Gender assignment slavery, something like that. Gender gender reassignment slavery. slavery. That's actually a line I'll probably use in my next Yeah, you can use it. TM. The point of all this is just that when even, like, there's this this weird conversation about whether the white 23 years, the indentured servants from Ireland and Scotland who were brought here and who were worked as slaves for generally 23 years, whether those were real slaves, because technically they had the chance of being freed when their contract expired. And, I mean, people tend to cleverly ignore the fact that the average life expectancy at this time is 31. Right. I mean, I, I would put those people in that category of unpaid, uncompensated laborers, let's say. Mm-hmm. So there were many kinds of slavery. Uh, I don't feel that ours was, in fact, the worst of them. I think the, the Aztecs or the Roman Empire probably hold that title. And this went on for virtually all of history, one version or another. What, kind of getting to the point, what makes the West stand out isn't the existence of slavery, it's the elimination of slavery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Slavery within the past 150 years virtually ceased to exist around the world, because the USA, the British Empire, and to a much lesser extent the Germans and the French, literally sent their navies around the world to fight wars with the slave powers. I mean, that's what the Barbary War that we fought in 1792 was about, for example. Right. So all of this is what you should know if you're going to discuss slavery, as opposed to just knowing America had slaves. Yes, we did. That's a great shame, but you have to rank us against every other country. Now, now then what the critics will say, and you respond to this as well, is, okay, we did end it, but we still have the legacy. See George Floyd. 
Well, yes, and that, that's that's another thing that I deal with in the essay. Now, first of all, the argument, again, I'm a political scientist by background, rather than, for example, a sociologist or an elementary educator or something. And I don't know if you follow the disputes in academia, but I think that gives a, a broader lens and maybe a little more skill with the numbers. So to say that the legacy of slavery only exists in the USA is nonsensical. There are entire countries like South Sudan that are defined by the legacy of black and Arab slave takers fighting one another. That's right. That's when right. you look at Eastern Europe, those European countries that underperform most of Africa, like Moldova, Bosnia, Georgia, so on, uh, you might throw Ukraine in there, although they're currently you know, a, a bit of a favorite with the USA. But one of the reasons for this is that there was massive Muslim slave raiding of those, those unfortunate places until very recently. I mean, when you talk about Janissaries and this kind of thing, the highest performing young men in that entire region were taken out of it for 300 years. And it's one of the most warlike regions of the world today, obviously. So when you say there's a legacy of slavery here, well, there's a legacy of slavery globally. I mean, that's probably top ten in terms of reasons Africa is poor. Uh-huh. But the second part of my commentary is that I don't think most of the problems in modern black communities are the legacy of slavery. And this, again, gets back to Thomas Sowell, gets back to the entire black conservative movement, black Christian movement. But if you look at the quote-unquote illegitimacy rate, fatherlessness rate in black communities in 1938, that was 10 to 12 percent. Today, that's 72 percent. It's 40 percent for white. Might have even so been better than... These problems. I mean, George Floyd, obviously, that's abusive policing there, but George Floyd was also on, what, a fentanyl, methamphetamine, yeah. involved in a crime yeah. at the time of his killing. Of course, not a justification, but lengthy felony rap sheet, former porn star... All of the things that went into George Floyd's life that brought him to that place had very little to do with anyone being defeated in a racial conflict 200 years before. They had much more to do with the great society, for example, or with modern feminism or with a dozen other things. Well, Professor, this is just such a great essay. I can't, I, I, I can't say enough good things about it. You know, once in a while you get one of these essays that you just want to last. In our social media world, it's hard. But you do work that lasts, sir. And I just, again, wanted to have you on because you always teach us something, at least one thing. Uh, but also so that as many people as possible within earshot will read it. So one more plug. RealClearPolitics.com. Is America Good? The Disputed Question. And Wilford Riley's essay, The Moral Case for American Goodness Endures. And I like your use of the word goodness because that gives it a moral, a moral cast, a moral pitch. So, Professor, thank you. Um, let me encourage people to buy your books as well. Any online retailer, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. And thank you again for your time, your scholarship, and everything else, Professor. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Have you a good one as always. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. There are forces of composition in our society. Unfortunately, there are also forces of decomposition. They never rest. The front line too often on the forces of composition tends to be law enforcement and the protection of children and innocence, which is why it's a delight and privilege to welcome back to the show someone I am asking you to vote for this November as our county attorney. She is the current county attorney. She is Rachel Mitchell. 
Her website is rachelmitchellformaricopa.com. Rachel, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I was mentioning that uh, there are forces of decomposition. You know, society can be held together uh, tightly and strongly. It can be held together by a thread. And we've seen uh, certain cities in this country, not here yet, thankfully, that are really hanging by a thread. Uh, They're a little bit to the north and a little bit to the west of us. And then there's a bunch to the east of us. We're doing our best to stay tightly wound and tightly knit. You're running in an election against an opponent who wants to end mandatory sentencing, get rid of the death penalty, end cash bail, empty uh, the jails, and not prosecute offenses she does not think should be prosecuted, despite what the people of Arizona have voted for. Um, Rachel, this, this is not democracy and this is not safety. You have pledged your life and your career to protecting the innocent. Talk to us about the stakes in this race. Absolutely. This is one of the most important races uh, that you're going to see uh, for the people of Maricopa County. Um, This race alone can make the difference between us staying a law-abiding, safe society, and it's certainly not a perfect community, but uh, it is certainly better than the Los Angeleses and uh, Portland's and Seattle's, and the difference between like those cities, just uh, where you have a county attorney or district attorney, as they call them, not enforcing the law and not holding people accountable. It's it's not really the district attorney or, in our case, the county attorney's job to decide uh, unto themselves what laws they choose to enforce when the people have voted and uh, have built a criminal code, correct? I mean, so, for example, your opponent is on record as saying anything having to do with an abortion offense, she's not going to be interested in prosecuting. That's not really her decision, mm-hmm. is it? No, it's not. That That is not an issue for the county attorney's office. The no. Supreme Court did not return the issue to the county attorney of Maricopa County. Right. They returned the issue to the state. Right. And as a law enforcement uh, position, it's completely inappropriate to, to pick and choose what laws you will and will not enforce. One of the issues that uh, a lot of a lot of listeners to radio, consumers of news, are unfamiliar with is, and it's good that they're unfamiliar with. They should be unfamiliar with the criminal justice system, but they get these mm-hmm. phrases that sound nice here and there, like ending mm-hmm. cash bail. We don't know. A lot of people don't know what that means. Rachel, can you talk to mm-hmm. us about what that means? What does end cash bail mean? Yeah, and, and they use other euphemisms like not punishing poverty and, right. and things like that, which sounds good on the surface. Right. But what it means is letting people out who are dangerous to the society, who have um, a high risk of not returning to stand uh, and be held accountable for their crimes, um, and uh, it's, it creates the revolving door of justice of the same criminals getting out and committing more and more crimes. Um, and it's, it's what we are seeing in these other cities that we've discussed. One of the things, this was a short segment, we'll have a longer one when we come back on the other side of this break, but one of the things I wanted to talk with you about and hear from you on, uh, Rachel, if, if we could, is these efforts at compassion 
towards the offender or the alleged offender, the people the police arrest and that your office prosecutes, the the alleged sympathy shown to them actually leaves out a forgotten person in a lot of these cases, in almost all of these cases. Uh, there is a yeah. victim. We tend to forget about the victim. And we don't they don't they don't they aren't famous. Their names don't get at the top of a Supreme Court case. They're not studied in law school. I wonder if on the other side of this break, you can give us give the audience an idea of why it is the prosecutor's office. Your office is so important in defending all of us from being would be victims. Can we visit on that when we come right back? Absolutely. Thank you. I am Seth Liebson. She is Rachel Mitchell, our county attorney, running to be elected this November. Rachel Mitchell for Maricopa.com. As I head to break, let me put in a word for why refi. If you are looking for a unique investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out my friends at why refi. Why REF invest why REFY.com. They're offering a fixed no load interest rate, up to 10 and a quarter percent return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Investyrefi.com. I'm Seth. She's Rachel. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Delighted to have Rachel Mitchell with us. She is our current county attorney. She is running for election November. Rachel Mitchell for Maricopa.com or .org. Either way is just fine as a website to learn more about her and help her out. I'm going to be uh, doing as much as I can to help her out because, as she says on her website, she is a veteran prosecutor who spent her career to protect children and victims of sex abuse and other crimes. And, Rachel, you know, it's an interesting kind of irony of, of, of the business you're in. Uh, we talked a little bit about it last time you were with us, but, you know, anyone who goes to law school and takes criminal procedure or criminal law courses, which they have to do, you know, they read an awful lot about the rights of these criminal defendants. And, of course, criminal defendants, like all of us, have our entitlement to our constitutional rights. But there is a forgotten man or woman or child in all of these cases that rarely gets discussed, and the law professors don't really get deep down into the weeds of what the underlying crimes were. Would you talk to us about these people who go through life, hopefully life and not death, anonymously and unknown to the class of students that studies the law and to the class of people that shows compassion sometimes misplaced for the wrong person? No, absolutely. The criminal justice system as it's reported out, is all about the accused person. And the forgotten person is the victim in these cases. And, you know, we, we hear about some things that are perhaps mitigating for the offender, but we don't hear very much detail about what happened to that victim. Right. Whether that victim was murdered and now we're dealing with their family members, or it's a child who was molested, or a, a man or a woman who was raped. Even when you're dealing with, quote, property crimes that people tend to be more dismissive of, you're talking about businesses who cannot continue to operate, and that impacts the entire community. It diminishes the community when businesses go out of business because the services and the location that they provide is no longer there. And so there is a profound effect of criminal behavior. Um, and even drug offenses, which are largely thought to be victimless crimes, are not because they drive a lot of these offenses. 
I've never really seen violent crime, and I, I'm sure you have. I mean, this is this is your profession and life's work, but I've never really seen violent crime cases where drugs or other substances of abuse weren't involved, uh, Rachel. I, I think it really is the vector and the driver to so much damage in our society. It is a huge factor, and um, even if it is not necessarily the impetus to commit the crime, right. It's, it, once drugs are on board, it becomes more violent, um, more random in terms of, you know, unpredictability. And so it, it is a huge player in criminal behavior. One of the things your, uh, your, your opponent in this election is talking, uh, likes to talk about is our heavy incarceration rate, our high incarceration rate. A lot of the left mm-hmm. will often talk about a society of mass incarceration. Uh, Arizona has a population of about 7 million people plus. We have about 24,000 people incarcerated last I looked. By no definition is this mass anything, is it? I mean, less than 1% of the national population is behind bars. This mass incarceration thing is a myth, too, isn't it, Rachel? Yeah, I I think it's they use those words like mass incarceration and you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't look at who we have in prison. Of course, it's always good to review what you're doing. Yeah. But a lot of times what I'm seeing is where there's a little bit of the story told about that incarceration, and the whole story is not being told about the impact that this person has had. A lot of times it's not reported how many prior felony convictions this person has That's right. or that they were on probation or parole or community supervision at the time they committed the offenses. So there's there are a lot of factors that I see uh, looking at the whole case that are not necessarily being reported. Rachel Mitchell is our guest. She's a candidate uh, to run again for county attorney this November. She is our current county attorney doing great work there, and I'm asking you to support her. Uh, Rachel Mitchell from Maricopa.com or .org. Either one is just fine. Rachel, talk to us, too, if you don't mind, a little bit about the death penalty. Uh, Democrats tend not to talk about it much in election years. Your opponent seems to be happy to. Uh, talk to us about the, the your views on the death penalty. You know, I think it should be reserved for the worst of the worst. And, you know, we have a very set system by which we review cases. It is not random or, um, you know, subjective. There are set um, factors in the law that talk about uh, when the death penalty may be sought. And so those have to be present. It has to be first-degree murder. And then we look for, obviously, the, the strength of the case as well as just the heinous nature of the crime. And so it, should, it certainly shouldn't be the, the rule. It should be the exception. But what are you going to do when somebody has killed multiple people or has killed a child or has killed a police officer? You know, those are situations where it does sometimes call for the ultimate punishment. Um, and, you know, it's, it, what you'll hear opponents say as well, you know, it's not really a deterrence. Well, it's very hard to measure murders that don't happen right? and violence that doesn't happen. Right. Uh, but, I mean, you can be certain that those things have been deterred. 
we we used to call it proving a negative, right, Rachel? And and yeah. and, and certainly in solving crimes, it's a it's it's a it's a it's got to be a, one of the most important and useful tools uh, with defendants in getting them to help help uh, help gather more evidence against you know other parts of the ring if they're involved in a conspiracy or if there is another if there's another partner in the crime. I mean, it's 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 a tool you do not want to take out of the prosecutor's hands, isn't it? Absolutely not. And and when you when you take that tool away, it's not like there's not going to be pushing the line even further. Right. We saw that happen with the juveniles when the United States Supreme Court ruled that juveniles could not not get the death penalty. But then it didn't stop there. Right. Then they pushed it to say, well, juveniles, you know, without certain findings should not uh, get life in prison. And so that line keeps moving. And um, so people should not think that that would be the end of the discussion. It won't be. When people have to face you or your office, Rachel, it's about the failure of something in society that took place. And often mm-hmm. it's going to be a repeat offender. Uh, this is something that you and those of us who care about crime have to think about as more than just the police job, more than just the county or district attorney's and prosecutor's job. It's part of an entire judicial system, too, isn't it? It's part of a community ethic. As we close out the interview, talk to the community about the kind of ethic you stand for and that which you wish they would partner with you on. You know, one of the visions uh, that I've been communicating to this office uh, since I took over, as well as to new employees that come in, is the, the concept of justice. And it is not, and I do not see it as just uh, punishment and vindictiveness. Um, it is doing right by a person. And we are professionals in this office. There is research that we can learn to look at whether somebody is a danger to the community, in which case they should be removed from society. But we also have a, uh, a very robust diversion program for people yep. who need help, such yep. as people who have addiction. Yep. But you still have to have a criminal justice system there to incentivize people to get that help and to hold them accountable. And anybody that has dealt with somebody that has an addiction issue understands that, you bet. that there has to be something behind that. You bet. Rachel Mitchell, Godspeed and God bless. Thank you for always taking time to uh, update us uh, on the campaign and on uh, what's going on in the county attorney's office. Rachel Mitchell for Maricopa.com is the website. Rachel Mitchell is the candidate. Thank you, Rachel. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You betcha. Bye-bye. Bless you and Godspeed. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, brought to you in part by the good people at Balance of Nature. They are good people that make a great product. Blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables and one daily dose of Balance of Nature. The equivalent of 10 servings of fruits and vegetables. There's nothing like it, and it won't take weeks for you to know whether it's working. With you putting that in your body, that pure, potent plant power, you'll know in a day, two days, three days at most. And it will work. I take it every day. I wouldn't have a day without it. Sometimes, if you're burning a candle at both ends or had a rough night, 
you might want to think about double dose, taking a double dose because you can't overdose on fruits and veggies. Just such a great product. Boost your energy, your health, and your immunity with Balance of Nature. Check them out at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Thinking about crime as we were with Rachel Mitchell a few moments ago, one, one of the greatest scholars uh, to, to read, if this is a, a, an issue of interest to you, is James Q. Wilson. He was the dean of crime studies after a guy named Edward Banfield before him at Harvard. And he actually uh, was one of the co-authors of something we've talked about before, which is the broken windows theory, something you hear an awful lot about. Not a lot of people quite fully understand it. We had a big discussion on it a few weeks ago. But in his book, James Q. Wilson's book, Thinking About Crime, something I highly recommend, he writes that predatory crime does not merely victimize individuals. It impedes and in extreme cases prevents the formation and maintenance of a community. By disrupting the delicate nexus of ties, formal and informal, by which we are linked with our neighbors, crime atomizes society and makes of its members mere individual calculators estimating their own advantage, especially their chances for survival amidst their fellows. It does not have to be this way, folks, nor do we have to involve ourselves in the justification of crime. What's the old line from West Side Story? We're depraved because we're deprived. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. We don't have to live with predatory crime. We make these decisions every other November about how we are going to live. And this November, I'm asking you all to stand up against the nonsense that crime is merely the condition of poverty or crime is merely the condition of racial racist prosecutors and police. Neither is true. It's a part of the human condition, and it requires better schools, better teachers, better families, better churches, better synagogues, and really good police and really good prosecutors. And actually, you know what? We have it in our power to maintain, if not create, all of that. So let's get to it. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 